Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel Jake Ware, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 23rd of June, 2023. This is going to be lecture number 83 in immunoepigenetics. Before I get into um, the work today, I want to give you a bit of a prolegomena and a little bit about the epistemology and metaphysics of the techniques that were actually used that we introduced uh, yesterday's lecture. Now, I mentioned last time how single-cell epigenomic um, antibody-directed immunocleavage using a microcockle DNAs, that technique will precisely define, target, nucleosomal, histone, lysine, methylation, and acetylation. And it'll link it to unique precursor product transcription factor expression profiles, which ultimately can give us an idea about lymphoid precursors down to early, middle, and late innate lymphoid cells. So what I do is I highlight the importance of single cell versus cellular and tissue aggregate data as becoming perhaps closer to the authentic biological state and thus providing a sharper focus of real-time epigenetic reprogramming that might lead all the way from an initial innate immune cell encounter with an pathogen-associated molecular pattern or damage-associated molecular pattern, working through pattern recognition receptors from some earlier event, thus obtaining a temporal memory, even within the innate cell progenitor class, and indeed in the innate cells that become memory cells but that are no longer reactive until further stimulated by a subsequent PAMP or DAMP triggering a similar kite response. Now, I want you to understand that cells divide non-synchronously in living systems. So this is totally different than what occurs in culture where we try to synchronize the cells to divide at the same time so that we can do nothing more than amplify the number of cells that we're working with for some subsequent procedures, such as in cloning, you know, overexpressing genes in cells, or in manipulating those cells to uh, direct towards the expression of a specific polypeptide or perhaps just to study the cells in their relationship to what's going on bioenergetically or global control over gene expression, that sort of thing. So you like synchrony when you're working with cells and culture, but that's not what happens in living systems. Okay. In fact, cells divide non-synchronously such that they occur as a population and that population is specifically distinguished by two very commonly understood phenomena. They're distinguished by age and by geography. 
so their position in space and their age. So it's a temporal, it gets down to time and space. Right? Those cells differ from those coordinates. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that these cells may be expressing genes in waves of patterns that might offer contrarian or even indeed contradictory signaling events, intracellularly and extracellularly. Now, if it were just at the level of transcriptional heterogeneity, because that's all we just mentioned there, expressing genes, right? So that typically is translated, pun intended, to initiating transcription from DNA to RNA, and then RNA translated to polypeptide, post-translational modifications leading to the full abundance and activity of whatever the protein is. For example, the CTP cytotransferase in the long and the de novo pathway to synthesize phosphatidylcholine in situ in an endomembranous system. Okay, that was an example. All right, so waves of patterns that could be contradictory or contrarian will occur when you have cells of different age and that have been derived from or that localized to specific geographical areas, say in an organ, or even in circulation. That's right. Circulation isn't like the planktonic bacteria in a test tube. Because when you talk about uh, uh, cells in circulation, I was going to mention lipoproteins, but that right now we're on cells. When you think about cells in circulation, such so as lymphocytes and leukocytes, you know, from the lymph and into the regular general circulation in the blood, that's a closed system that is a genetically modified, epigenetically controlled biochemical phenomenon. It's a, basically, it's open to the environment indeed, but it's not a sterile test tube where you're amplifying, amplifying cells of identical genome or very close to identical genome for some technique, you know, for some research project, okay? No. So cells in circulation are in a highly complex environment where there are multiple potential for delivery of signals from the cells to the uh, everything that's subsequent to them and then all of the potential interactions from cells they make contact with in the vasculature or in the circulation, or from just signaling molecules like cytokines that happen to reach the correct concentration, it's called the KM, so that an event can occur within those cells that are in circulation, right? Okay. All right. And you know, it's not just cells in circulation, because I did mention lipoproteins, and not just that, right? Okay. <laughs> so I want you to understand that there are ways or patterns, and they can have contradictory or contrarian signaling events. So if it were all just at the level of that transcriptional heterogeneity, that would be complex enough to have a whole new way of understanding biochemical systems. But realize that non-transcriptional alterations in the cellular metabolome will contribute greatly to all of that cell signaling heterogeneity. So now what am I saying, okay? 
I, I, I was robustly uh, gracious about the single cell um, immunocleavage that was going on in the last paper and saying this is really good because you're looking at individual cells. And I said, because they differ, we need to look at it. So now let me finish my argumentation here. What am I saying? Well, it's good to examine individual cell epigenomes. Why? Because it reveals how cells individually deliver their communication network to future metabolic events. And they're doing it when more very precisely. So when we know what individual cells are doing because we're studying them, we gain precision in our understanding. Now, how many individual single cell profiles must one do to get the true picture of even the dialectic that occurs at every micro event? So that's a question we don't have an answer for. And by the way, this only examines, because we're talking about a dialectical bivalent situation, such as off, on, plus, minus, right? But what about amplitude modulation and frequency modulation? And then of all of the interactions of each of the tens of millions of events obtained at the multiple three-dimensional domains of endomembranes, three-dimensional domains of chromatin, and indeed cell surface, or nuclear or mitochondrial crosstalk over bioenergetics, reactive oxygen species liquidation, and, in, and most importantly, lipid biosynthesis and turnover. So do I need to add further how the immune cleavage technique, while very clever and indeed illustrative of good research tools to further our really crude understanding of epigenetic phenomena at this point, it still is not, we still did not encounter in the paper we discussed, and neither will you encounter, a vast multi million volume library of antibody conjugates that would recognize and bind about every possible permutation of epigenetic alterations that in themselves change rapidly in time and space. So my view is this. There are signatures of biochemical phenomena that we faithfully observe and we correctly and accurately measure and thus obtain as patterns of events that do allow us to see them play out as a sequence according to furthering our temporal sensoria, which is how we are measuring everything that we encounter, right? The sequence of events, one thing following another.
However, there is a built-in, I would say, heuristic problem. Now, quick, easy answer, respond, Dan. The problem arises at the very beginning of the whole project. Because as a research scientist, what do we do? We enter into the study of this living system with certain biases. Personal, individual biases based on our education and experience and uh, ability of reasoning. So normally at this point, having just said that and stopping, you might think what biases I'm referring to are about that previous knowledge, which I just alluded to. And what obtains in us for any future research based on those biases of previous knowledge. Now, I'm telling you, you'd only be half right. My initial synthesis of the problem, now I'm doing a synthesis, is the premise that demands to admit as a research scientist that all of what we have no previous knowledge of is at least equally important to what we do have knowledge of. So you might think of those that's a binary, but it's not because it becomes a leveling of research endeavor when one moves from all possibilities, possibilities, to merely a select list of very certain, we think certain, probabilities. Okay? So I bring this up because I'm, I've been trying to focus now for some time, and I'm writing about this, external to these lectures, how research science is nothing more than a view on nature. Now that's a great deal, and we have very good lenses that can occupy our time and space to interpret what we observe revealed from careful hypothetical deduction, experimental design, execution of the research, and then evaluation of the data into evidence, and finally induction. But we do not, within all of this wonderful research uh, project paradigm, allow for all the potential possibilities. And again, you might argue against that conclusion, that synthesis. Well, how can you? Well, I'm not saying that we can at all. That's not, that's not, my, that's not my position. It's not my point of view. It is that we cannot. And so that means we must be humbled by what we think we understand, even in a system that we measure and study very, very, very thoroughly, such as the immune response. Because every time we get into it, at least when I read the literature, I, I walk away with many more questions, not just questions on how the research was done. That falls into normal practice. 
but what research isn't being done because the ideas have never risen to a level of a deductive process to generate an hypothesis. And because of that, we won't know until we get there, you see. So that's the whole caveat about this. And between and, and I, where did I jump off? What was the platform from? The single cell study, which is very good, versus an aggregate study, which itself is very good. But then what's really going on are all the possible permutations between all of that matrix. And that is the true nature of biological systems. All the interaction, all the event ontology, right? Which I keep on saying, I know. All right. So there are specific phenotypes of innate immune cells, and they are going to rely on complex cell-specific transcriptional patterns. And that transcriptional patterning is regulated, as you are fully aware, at multiple levels of transcription factor, transcription factor complex turnover, lipid trafficking of proteins into the nucleus, on and on and on. So that's all just getting into the level of chromatin remodeling to generate RNA synthesis, you know, the transcriptional process. But then you have all the post-transcriptional and all the translational and post-translational phenomena, all of which is regulated and somewhat sequ sequentially and interactively, but where there can always be slight modifications, modifications that may actually be necessary to add elasticity to the system so it doesn't lock in to a specific program. Furthermore, there's a tissue-mediated and infection signal transduction-mediated metabolic retailering that goes on below the level of detection of a disease state, simply an infection phenomenon or an overproduction of a protein phenomenon in a cell that is recognized nevertheless by the surveillance machinery of the innate and then, of course, the acquired immune response. And all of that will contribute to the establishment of a component series of events that are epigenetic often to deliver the constellation of cellular phenotypes. In this case, we're talking about the innate lymphoid cells, right? So cell-specific chromatin structure will control, and that, that has to do with nucleosomes and histones, right, and all this, will control the canonical transcriptional machinery. That in itself, as we know, because, you know, the, the architecture of the, of the promoters and the enhancers and where they are statistically arranged within the double-stranded DNA near or abouts where the open reading frame is to start transcription, right? All of that is essential and very specific and, yes, modulatory, right? This is the, this is the original... Um, insight into our understanding of the control of gene expression, right? All those canonical activities that control just simply transcription, you know, promoters, enhancers, and transcription factors. 
They're all playing an essential role in the final phenotype. And that final phenotype can end up being cellular determination and cellular definition, which is linked to functional alteration, maybe even transformation of, because we're talking about them, the innate immune cell profile. And I say, because there, that wasn't just thrown in there as a word to get from one part of the sentence to the other. It wasn't a copula. It was a working verb, okay? I'm trying to say because of all of that, the result will be an activity of the immune cell response at the innate level. Now, add in, and now we're coming back in with our new understanding, the epigenomic understanding. Add in DNA methylation, and not just methylation, but you know the DNA itself can be acetylated and malinated and propanylated and citrullated. DNA can also be associated via hydrogen bonding with certain glycerol and sphingolipids, right? There's this whole array. A carbohydrate modifications can occur at the DNA level. Um, although I know I'm going to bring them up because carbohydrates are so boring, right? But that's the case, nevertheless. Um, and you also have all of this bioenergetics that's necessary to even carry through an epigenetic alteration. Why is that? Because these reactions, there's all this chromatin retailering, takes ATP. You're moving around macromolecular structures in a nucleus. You're, you're carrying, depositing, and assembling transcription factors in the nucleus. You know, remember all the story about entropy and enthalpy. You remember the first law of thermodynamics. Remember the second law of thermodynamics. This is why I talked about it recently. Okay? These are laws which govern. Remember I told you these are regulatory understandings. If they are true laws, well, we don't really know that. We need to define certain restrictions. And so we invent intellectually restrictions on nature and we define them as laws. So the way Newton looked at it, he didn't create those. He discovered those basic, for example, physical laws. Einstein felt pretty much the same way, as did de Broglie, um, as did Planck, as did all the great physicists and all the great chemists. Right? You're discovering something. When you say discover, that's a funny word, right? That's a very energetic verb in itself, right? <laughs> very active verb. but discovering it out of nature that means you observe something you define it and then you solidify it right it's not solidified to a substance into an event now many people do turn into substances they were in error they're events right but that doesn't mean they're really there they're only definitions necessary to regulate our thoughts to get further down the road to understanding the phenomena in this case, natural phenomena, like biochemical events. And why wouldn't we? Because those are the most significant, of course. So remember, you have, you have all this energy necessary, and then you have all these chromatin retailering 
proteins and nucleic acids and carbohydrates and lipids. And that means there's a lot of enzymatic activity, a lot of interfering RNA and non-coding long RNAs. Particularly significant are those long non-coding RNAs. And all of that latter material we're talking about, all that chromatin alteration, is going to change the molecular structure of the chromatin in three-dimensional state solution chemistry. So that's going to add to and remove in certain situations the 2D to 3D profiling of chromatin in the nucleus because of all the polypeptides that are adding. And remember, there's a sidedness to all of this. Remember the whole concept of isomers, enantiomers, diastereo isomers. And this all plays a role ultimately in the fundamental processing of the retailer DNA during, after, and then reoccurring in the epigenome. Okay. So we don't really have a fixed genotype. The chromatin itself is a constantly changing system. Now, not changing at the sequence level. So you have a sequence of, of nucleotides. The sequence of nucleotides are read by the transcriptional machinery and using transfer RNA and ribosomal RNA and the messenger RNA rolling inside that ribosome. You synthesize a polypeptide, which also has orderedness to it, amino to carboxy termina with a specific sequence of amino acids that are laid down by reading the codon and the RNA, the anti-codon machinery, then replicating that message into now a polypeptide. Okay? All of that is definitely there, but you need at the level of altering expression and even at the level of modifying rates of all of that machinery, plasticity. And that plasticity, particularly when we start to talk about epigenomic situations, will give you a reversible authorship and ultimately reading and modulating and even erasing specific markups on the chromatin. That means you have a regulatable, yeah, sure, chromatin retailering phenomena. But is that regulation something that we can just lay out like we do, you know, the, the nucleotide code, right? The genetic code, which itself isn't really as defined as we first defined it from the bacterial work in the late 50s, early 60s. So even that, you know, the actual codon usage varies, right? And it's really the only first two nucleotides that play the most significant role, right? Because of the wobble of the third nucleotide. Okay. But remember, this is all a level of plasticity on the genome, which is necessary because the system is living in an environment that is variable. Variable is a level of what? Possibility. Now, you might say probability because you have all this inclusion of cells and tides inside of vascularization, inside of organs and all this differentiation that was preformed and 
existing during the developmental differentiation process. Those are true statements. But the contrary to that is all that system itself is under elastic and plastic surveillance review and alteration. And we're only now realizing this, right? We're only now beginning to even tap into it. So besides having an epigenome, in the literature, you'll see that there is a regulome. They call it the epiregulome. And that regulome is what modifies the chromatin. And so then you get all of this DNA and nucleosomal histone covalent modification. You get a change in nucleosomal positioning as well as ornamentation in those covalent modifications. And then once that occurs, that modified chromatin positioning and um, ionic character, let's say, or hydrophobic character as well, will then open up new possibilities for further modifications of that DNA going down pathways that were never initially inclined simply from the chromatin structure itself. So you have this epiregulome that actually must be introduced as being involved in yet another hierarchy of organization. And it's going to regulate things like protein accessibility. And because of that, enzymatic activity. And then that's going to link up with cis-acting elements on the DNA because the promoter itself is going to be in play because of the 